Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by two very special guests, two returning guests, uh, Keith Raboy and Jacob Helberg. You guys have both come on individually, but it is the first time you've come on my podcast and I believe any podcast uh, together. Uh, guys, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here in our exclusive uh, dual capacity. <laughs> it's great to be with you, Eric. Yeah, thank you for giving me the exclusive. I know it means a lot as, a, as an interviewer. Prime time. Awesome. So we're, we're here to, to get into a, a number of different topics, one of which I want to start out is China. Now, now you guys have both been uh, talking about China for quite some time, longer than other people have been talking about it. Jacob, you came on the podcast a few months ago, and you, in fact, basically predicted what was going to happen with TikTok. But before getting into the, the details, and, and by way of introduction for people who, ha- who haven't listened, why don't you trace your, your evolution, how you've thought about China, how you changed your mind on, on the topic, or, or just sort of how, you know, since you know, 2015 on, for example, you've, uh, you've sort of thought about it. Maybe, Jacob, we'll start with you. Sure. So I, like a lot of people, had high hopes that China would be a country that could evolve into being a a responsible stakeholder in the international system. Uh, Unfortunately, over the years, I've always had my doubts because of uh, China's autocratic and authoritarian nature. And unfortunately, over the years, we've seen that unchecked power domestically a lot of the times can go sideways in ways that are pretty dark. In recent years, obviously, there have been revelations of genocide and the use of technology uh, both within China as well as its exports of uh, autocratic uh, methods of repression abroad have been incredibly dystopian. And uh, right now we're seeing a debate where uh, there's a big debate about whether or not we're in a Cold War with China. And the expression around the nomenclature of a Cold War is very controversial. I'm very happy to say that I bring to this conversation no vested interest other than a genuine desire for us to see uh, the country make the right decision and land in the right place on this issue. And I think that it's really fair to say that at this point, Folks that say that we're not in a Cold War haven't been paying attention to the vast array of issues that a lot of Americans have grievances about, from the willful and lethal export of fentanyl to our country, to the rampant theft of intellectual property, the undermining of democracy around the world, the military intrusions in other countries like India, and and as I said earlier, the revelations of genocide. So the way that I think about it is that, as George Orwell once eloquently put it, it's a piece that's not really a piece. And it's important that we take stock of that and act accordingly. Yeah, I mean, one thing you may know, Eric, that Jacob's talked about is, you know, he started working on some analysis of China's threat, you know, several years ago, probably three or four years ago. And nobody at that time was paying any attention whatsoever. And he drafted like a summary of some of his concerns. And we showed it to some of our friends and they thought it was incredibly, you know, revolutionary actually, um, because it was so far off uh, central casting to whatever else was paying attention. Now, obviously a lot more people all across the globe, but in the United States, politicians of, you know, every stripe are paying to some extent attention. Um, So, you know, it's moved, it's like a classic like startup where it's moved from incredibly controversial and sort of almost borderline um, insane, you know, when people read it four or five years ago to like consensus 
it's a little bit like Airbnb going from insane to consensus in a matter of years or open door going from crazy to proven in a few years. Now all of Jacob's views are mainstream. Yeah, Jacob, you're, you're a seed investor of uh, political, uh, political thought. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He's off to the races now. I mean, you know, I've been paying attention to China for a long time as well. And so we didn't actually really know this, um, you know, when we first met each other. But um, I had worked on some China policy along many, many years ago when I was involved in policy. And I always had some concerns about um, the lack of thought that the American political establishment, particularly the foreign policy establishment, had given to China policy over the last 40 years. So in 1972, when we started engaging in China through Nixon's you know, sort of approaches, the whole point was to have China as a counterweight to the Soviet Union. And after the Soviet Union basically imploded in 1989, a lot of people never asked the question, well, why do we have this counterweight policy? Um, and what does that mean? Um, should we still have this counterweight policy? Should we shift everything now that there's no longer a threat posed by the Soviet Union? And a lot of the China policy that we're still living with doesn't make any sense if there's no Soviet Union. So, for example, in 1979, you know, I think we had this morally bankrupt decision where we basically sold Taiwan under the bus. We basically said they're a democracy, but China is a bigger, more important country. So we're not going to have any principles about protecting democracy and democratic governments. We're just going to refuse to call Taiwan an actual state anymore. And I think, you know, various Republicans, various Democrats have all been complicit in that. And it's probably the biggest intellectual and moral black hole on the foreign policy, you know, on the foreign, from a foreign policy perspective, the United States is engaged in for centuries. And no one, maybe at the time you could justify it because we had this geopolitical interest in front of the Soviet Union. But after 1989, it's almost impossible to justify. And nobody was really rethinking this stuff. And that's just one example. And I think one of the things, one of the trends that we're, that's in, that I find encouraging that we're seeing and that has really lacked in Washington, as Keith just pointed out for a long time, is that there have been these calcified sacred cows and orthodoxies around the consensus of what our foreign policy should be for a long time that haven't been revisited. And in Silicon Valley and in the tech industry, the culture really thrives on the basic idea of questioning uh, assumptions. And in foreign policy, we haven't questioned a lot of our assumptions for a long time. We've had these big bumper sticker mantras that have gone unquestioned, like, as China would grow richer, it'll become freer. And, you know, let's hope that it'll pan out. And obviously it hasn't. Or uh, if China, if we bring China deeper into the international system, it'll have an incentive to not completely change it. And that hasn't panned out. So, so many of core assumptions that our foreign policy has been rested on have been completely disproven by a rising autocratic, revanchist, uh, revisionist, dystopian government. And I think it's really important for us to ask ourselves at what point, what is the threshold at which we decide as a country to push back in an intelligent way and in a way that makes sure that democracy will have a place and will be reascendant in the 21st century? Yeah, I mean, I think, for example, conceptually, the idea of engagement, which is roughly a summary way of thinking about some of the concepts that Jacob was alluding to, of that the more we would welcome China, the more we'd engage with China, the more the West would engage with China from an economic standpoint and a cultural standpoint, the, the more free the nation would be. And then the less threatening to the United States they would become. 
conceptually, that's arguably sound and certainly worked in other countries. But the evidence, the factual evidence, has been around for now arguably 20 years, but certainly the last decade, that the policy of engagement was a miserable failure. And very few people were pushing to rethink that. One of the benefits you know, of Trump, and you can argue about the benefits or lack thereof of the Trump presidency, but one of the things that is, was clear from the time he was a candidate was that he was not going to subscribe to the foreign policies establishment sort of stranglehold on these assumptions that Jacob talks about. Trump, for better or for worse, is willing to roll the dice on a lot of this stuff and say, you know, look, the foreign policy establishment's been wrong many, many times. Whether you like the Iraq war or not, you know, he's very critical of that. Whether you like the policy in the Middle East, he's been very critical of that historically and in China and in arguably also in, uh, you know, other parts of Asia, maybe with less success. But he really basically ripped up and shredded a lot of things. And, you know, people would say he shredded a lot of things that he shouldn't have. But in the foreign policy side, actually, the evidence is maybe the things that were being shredded were actually pretty intellectually bankrupt. Uh, we've seen this in the Middle East. The Middle East has peace breaking out like left and right, mostly because Trump basically did ignore the foreign policy consensus. He you know, recognized the moving of the U.S. embassy. He finally delivered on that. He refused to give in you know, to a lot of Arab demands. And now all of a sudden, we may see the most peaceful Middle East you know, situation we've seen in all of our lives like unfolding right before us, partially because the foreign policy establishment didn't have a stranglehold on this administration. And one of the things that I found really encouraging is that you're seeing seeds of a new consensus, bipartisan consensus, emerging around this issue. Trump questioned it, but I think it's something that beneath the surface it's always been incredibly popular in America to have a stronger stance on China. It's just that past presidents have fallen a little bit short of imposing that stronger stance. It it was uh, the idea of being strong on China was popular in 2005 when President Hu Jintao visited Washington and there was a strong sentiment back then uh, along those lines. Uh, Let's not forget that Bill Clinton campaigned uh, calling China the butchers of Beijing after Tiananmen Square. So I think there's always been these undercurrents and a certain level of discomfort in the American electorate around China, but only recently has that discomfort made its way to Washington. And I talk on a regular basis with a lot of incredibly bright rising stars in the Democratic Party, as, as well as in, uh, as well as with experts from different political persuasions. And I find it incredibly encouraging the extent to which uh, there's bipartisan agreement on the scope and nature of the threat, and the extent to which uh, that the understanding of how important this threat is being the basis for agreeing on big things that need to get done domestically in order to make sure that America stays ahead in the 21st century. Yeah. I understand the argument that I guess we had in the nineties and two thousands, you know, it's a hubristic argument and it was wrong, but Hey, if, if they, as they become richer, maybe they'll become more democratic. I understand that we were sort of drinking our own Kool-Aid, but at this point I can't imagine why we would sort of deny or what's the incentive to deny that there's sort of a, an emerging cold war. Steve Bannon's of all people, his, his argument, I believe is something along the lines of, China's effectively bought off our elites, you know, like effectively like Goldman Sachs and, and other sort of major companies or universities, the NBA, um, other organizations are effectively just in the pocket uh, of the CCP because they're just economically incentivized to at sort of the expense of the of the public. To, to what extent is or isn't that that true? And maybe talk about 
the role both DC and Silicon Valley have to play in this sort of emerging uh, Cold War and how they are or aren't living up to it? Well, I, I strongly believe that the reason why the business establishment, let's call it the Fortune 500 business community and the political establishment have sort of turned a blind, blind eye to a lot of the challenges of China and uh, truthfully the offenses of China was because of the potential or the, or the reality of money. There's a lucrative market, 1.2 billion people. Like, so that's why you see the NVA, you know, focused on China expansion. How do they grow their revenues? How do they grow their popularity? And the consequences we saw last year vis-a-vis Hong Kong, you see Disney somehow or another basically producing movies with slave labor and giving the government editorial control over Disney movies. Like it, this is like insane, but it's because there's money at stake. And when there's a lot of money at stake, shockingly, a lot of Americans and a lot of people across the globe don't have so many great principles, but because China has been such a big market opportunity that they've dangled in front of people. There's a lot of people that suddenly, you know, don't follow their normal political principles. Um, and so they've been very opportunistic. Um, one of the reasons why I think that's changing is some of the potential of the market has been less realized than people hoped for. So there's people who tried to enter China, I think Google or arguably Facebook, they've been burned by that and they're no longer seduced by the potential. And now they're willing to take a more of a realistic perspective and be less distorted by the potential money. But I think actually one of the things that changed popular culture and popular perception of China was actually the NBA um, and the Hong Kong debacle uh, about a year ago, because I think it was off the radar of a lot of middle America before this sort of exploded on the scene. You know, a lot of Silicon Valley people have been paying attention to the the threat posed by China around AI, but that was kind of a a very niche inside technology baseball kind of story. But the Hong Kong um, suppression of dissent really designed to keep the Chinese government happy um, was something, you know, an average American could easily understand. And the way, truthfully, the embarrassing way the NBA acted, the way a lot of NBA superstars acted, is fundamentally inconsistent with all of the politically correct ideas that they're trying to lobby for all the time, and partially because this stuff threatened their pocketbook. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with Keith that today, and now that there's more public screening, we're seeing the conflicts of interests really shine through in technicolor in so many ways. And I think there are elements of the business community that have, that have quietly started to sour on China because, as Keith pointed out, a lot of the promise and the carrot that China used to dangle with the size of its market hasn't panned out. And one example I would add to the uh, list of examples that he cited, of course, was Uber, which uh, dumped a lot of money into the Chinese market only to basically get chewed out and uh, cannibalized there. Um, a lot of the, the main types of companies that have uh, been able to get access to the Chinese market have been hardware companies, primarily because China has bigger plans about forcing those companies to access the Chinese market through joint ventures, which basically amount to handing over to the IP because China has macroeconomic plans with respect to its industrial uh, leadership. But I would break down the reasons uh, for the dovishness on China into four main buckets. There are the groups of people that have a academic, you know, wonky resistance to the use of the term Cold War for academic reasons, 
I wholeheartedly disagree with that viewpoint because I think if you just look at any layperson's understanding of the meaning of what the expression the Cold War means, I think that's exactly where we find ourselves today. War is a spectrum. It's not binary. There are many different types of warfare. And I think from George Orwell's definition to the 14th century definition of Don Juan Manuel, who uh, talked, who wrote about in the 14th century, a lukewarm war or tepid war. Uh, there have been many cold wars throughout history, and I think we're living through one of them. There are those in the foreign policy establishment that are simply afraid, that fear uh, the specter and uh, the consequences of what it might mean to admit that we are in a Cold War. Does it mean that we have to take drastic steps in a number of different directions? A lot of people don't like to ruffle feathers. And ultimately, I'm, I have a very natural skepticism of fear-based arguments. I think we can be afraid all we want, but at the end of the day, uh, let's remember the lessons of history and that in, in the mid-20th century, you know, Chamberlain's famous last words that if only we could sit at the table with the Germans and run through their grievances, we could work out a settlement. <laughs> I think when you're faced, peace takes two, when you are faced with a foreign, autocratic, ambitious power that has its own designs, its own plans, its own motivations, you can... Come to the table with the best intentions and only to get deceived and you lose time and you end up with your back against the wall and with a much, much more difficult hand to play than if you, than if you take a, a more assertive stance up front. Appeasement can lead to war, not confrontation. Both appeasement and confrontation can lead to war, but too often the establishment forgets that appeasement can also invite the very kind of war that we're looking to avoid. And the last two that I would add is discouragement. There have been a number of op-eds where you can just sense uh, a number of foreign policy uh, diplomats that have been around for 30 plus years that are just kind of discouraged that start in the opening paragraphs of some of their op-eds saying, oh, America can't, you know, we can't change the trajectory of China, nor should we try, and therefore let's cut a deal and accommodate. I kind of disagree with that because I think Amer I think there are a lot, a lot of cards that America hasn't played yet. And I think that, to be honest, it's not just about America. I mean, if it was just about ourselves, it would be much easier to uh, throw our hands up in the air and say, well, you know, let's just see where, where this goes. But this is about the future of democracy, which ultimately impacts not just all of us, but, you know, the future of our kids and uh, the future of this country and, and democratic people everywhere. So I think it's, it's a much bigger mission than ourselves. And the last one is conflicts of interest, which we talked about earlier. Yeah, I mean, I would dial this back to, this is very similar to the debate we had in the late 70s when Ronald Reagan was elected, where a lot of people were accommodating the Soviet Union and just were advised that we need to be realistic and that we would be threatening war by taking steps to confront the Soviet Union and calling them out as the evil empire was incredibly controversial. Um, but the, the part that led to the best success in American foreign policy in the last 70 years was being intellectually honest and being candid publicly. The Soviet Union was an evil empire. And by stating that, we liberalized people to confront the Soviet Union internally and in the satellite states of Poland. We allowed the United States internally to finally take steps 
to put more pressure on the Soviet Union to reform itself. And it turns out the Soviet Union was intellectually bankrupt and economically bankrupt at the same time. And it was only by the clarity of thought and the willingness to ruffle feathers and not accommodate that, you know, President Reagan had that we were able to make dramatic change so that by the time, you know, Jacob was actually born, the Soviet Union was ending, um, which is really exciting. And, you know, in contrast, I think a lot of people who grew up through the traditional political establishment, whether they're Republican or Democrat, are afraid of taking these steps because they're too likely to listen to advisors. One of the greatest features of Reagan was he had an intellectual philosophy and it didn't matter what other people told him. He was sure that he was on the right side of history and he was going to let nothing get in his way. Trump, I don't know, has quite the intellectual philosophy and heft behind it, but he also isn't afraid, obviously, of ruffling feathers. Um, so I think it's not accidental that you see some of these foreign policies that for decades we've taken for granted in the United States. It requires a president who's fairly immune from conventional thinkers and conventional advisors to be able to t- take the first baby steps that unlocks progress. Yeah, I've heard the argument that McCarthyism in its sort of assessment of the problem was actually correct and that there were a lot of communists in the United States. Maybe its methods were extreme or wrong or, or you know, uh, not, not the right solution, but that people underappreciate perhaps, how, especially among the left, just how many were actual you know, sympathizers. I think that's probably fair. The diagnosis was correct. Obviously, certainly can quibble with the reaction. But interestingly enough, um, I hadn't really focused on this before, but the Chinese investment in Hollywood studios Uh, has been an incredibly effective propaganda campaign over the last 30, 40 years. I mean, other people have written this. uh, It's not an original idea, but you cannot find movies that have Chinese villains. (laughs) And that's a byproduct of the Chinese dollars and Chinese market being used to either acquire and or manipulate the people who produce content in the United States. Whereas you can find lots of Russian villains, you know, over the last 50, 60, 70 years. So in some ways you can argue that um, China learned a lot of lessons from uh, the Hollywood saga vis-a-vis the cold war, the initial cold war um, with the Soviet Union. And basically said, well, why don't we just own the content producers and then we don't want to have this problem. Uh, and, and actually, BuzzFeed, uh, not long ago, covered a very interesting in-depth report about the influence of Chinese money in Hollywood. I have some family in the movie business. I can tell you there's a lot of fear among producers and artists about being overly critical about of China uh, when producing a movie. There's fear of it having financial repercussions with respect to uh, access and availability of funding, but there's also fear of what happened uh, in the early 2010s with Sony and yeah. the hack when there was a silly comedy that ended up co- turning Hollywood onto its head because Sony got hacked and um, all of a sudden the executives at Sony's emails were publicly revealed and it ended up to but resulting in people getting embarrassed and a bunch of people got fired. So there, I think there's a real problem that is incredibly important for us to be honest about with respect to um, the influence of of the Chinese Communist Party in movies and our universities and Confucius centers around the country. And I think it's okay to admit that while at the same time asserting the basic fact that 
the United States isn't in a Cold War with the Chinese people. It's in a Cold War with the Chinese Communist Party, a regime in Beijing that has a lust for power. And uh, let's remember that the Chinese people are, are the first victims of the CCP. Tibetans are Chinese citizens too. Uyghurs are Chinese citizens too, despite what the CCP says and does. But these citizens have been oppressed for so many years. And, and, it's, and I think being empathetic uh, and uh, having solidarity towards the Chinese people, I think is it's hard to have solidarity for the Chinese people without acknowledging the malicious behavior of the, of the CCP. Yeah, and then, you know, I'm glad that Jacob mentioned BuzzFeed, who's not my, typically not my favorite publication, but I, I give them a lot of credit for being intellectually honest on this topic, whereas the New York Times has basically been a CCP propaganda outlet for the last 10 years. So there's a famous story um, probably about five years ago, cover page, the New York Times front page, where they wrote about how the Chinese internet is censored, but Chinese citizens are happy. <laughs> Literally, you should Google this. It is absurd, and it was absurd at the time. And the fact that it was a front front page news in quotes story oh, is, is insane. And then, you know, more recently, you've seen things where you know various people who write for the New York Times have been defending China's policy on many of these topics. And it's just absolutely as I mean, it almost looks like someone owns the New York Times the way they you know, support the regime. Um, but uh, fortunately, you know, now with diversity of media, um, these stories are getting out there through social media, through alternative publications. Um, so, you know, American policymakers have to confront the actual reality and they can't be as easily manipulated by the gatekeepers. My pet theory is that in addition to sort of financial considerations, one of the reasons why sort of some far, far leftists don't you know, acknowledge the the um, you know Cold War is because it takes emphasis away on our domestic problems, and they want more you know focus focus on that. And so, any any sort of thing that is a distraction or that will unite the country against some external enemy means that there's you know l- less focus on hey, what are the problems internally? There's some maybe truth to that. I mean, like like just like running a company, you know, the CEO can only have one, two, or three priorities, and you have to prioritize. But like long term, if history teaches anything, neglecting foreign threats. Always come back. Always come back. Always returns and haunts you because it always comes back and with a much more draconian, difficult challenge. And so, deferring problems tends to really be, uh, uh, you know, catastrophic. Um, yeah. So, for example, um, but. I'm not even sure it's factually true. You know, to her credit, another politician who I really don't like is Elizabeth Warren. But when the Hong Kong NBA controversy erupted, she actually put out a very strong statement supporting Hong Kong. Uh, to her credit, so she's obviously got a, a you know a very left wing domestic agenda that she cares a lot about. But um, she was willing, I think, in the Trump sort of style of not being as tied to the conventional wisdom, willing to say something that was different. And so I think it isn't totally true that it's, uh, you know, a a failure to be distracted from domestic reform and improvement, um, because you do see left-wing politicians and right-wing politicians focused on the issues. Josh Hawley on the conservative side is very attuned to this issue, as is Elizabeth Warren. And I think that's an interesting bipartisan, you know, sort of consensus. And, and I would add that ultimately, if you want to make, if you want a low unemployment, a prosperous economy, our companies need to do well. And in a world where our companies are competing with quasi-state-run, state-backed 
companies uh, that are provided the full-fledged support of, of the Chinese Communist Party, I think it's kind of hard to decouple our domestic objectives from the competitive, from our broader competitive landscape. In the same way that Amazon is competing with Microsoft, uh, the United States is competing with China, and you can't really compete effectively if you're not looking at your competitor at all. And, uh, and so it, I think it's very, very hard to uh, decouple those two things. Yeah, in addition, as J- Jacob pointed out at length in one of his recent pieces in foreign policy, look, this affects everyday Americans. When we don't have access to prescription drugs, when we can't produce penicillin or antibiotics in the United States, when we don't have access to PPE or masks because they're produced in China, that's something that affects every American, blue-collar Americans, white-collar Americans, Democrats, Republicans, Midwest Americans, coastal elites. So you can't really divide and say, you know, a major issue is confronting America today internally are insulated from confronting the reality of China. Yeah. You, you know, it's interesting, like a couple years ago, or, or when Trump was first starting to do some of this stuff, you could barely find any sort of major economists uh, or, you know, most economists did not support it. It doesn't match the models. It doesn't sort of match how we teach economics in terms of free trade, even when the other you know, uh, country is a, you know, mercantilist, uh, you know, uh, autocrat. And yet I've seen a lot of libertarians and a lot of uh, economists recently, I think COVID has been sort of one, you know, lightning rod there, sort of change their tune a little bit. Like we even had Tyler Cowen, you know, write about sort of uh, state capacity, which, you know, you would never expect a libertarian to, to write about. It's sort of been interesting to see that uh, that that evolution. I'm curious if you guys have seen it, seen it too. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's it's fascinating. I mean, I, I generally start with a free trade. You know, I understand all the advantages, a comparative advantage, all the stuff you're taught, like you know, basic econ. I've always been a fan of, but I, I think the reality of macro threat to our system and macro threat to democracy trumps some short term economics. So, for example, I think outsourcing. All of these supply chains to China, whether electronics or prescription drugs, was economically efficient and led to, in some ways, a better standard of life for Americans. That's a very short-term and maybe middle-term focus, but there's a strategic premium that we basically paid for that, which threatens the national interest. And at some point, the longer-term national interest has to trump short-term marginal economics. So it would definitely be more expensive in any reasonable time horizon to produce iPhones in the United States. The consumer surplus of an iPhone is outstanding, like the ability to have the world in your pocket, all the world's information in your pocket, you know, maps, music, everything. So no doubt, instant on communication, life-saving kinds of technologies. However, we've been subsidizing that in a sort of anti-strategic way by manufacturing these products at a discount in China. At some point, the strategic sacrifice, national interest sacrifice, is too expensive to bear, and we have to confront that. We did this with oil and petroleum in the 1970s. Turned out, in the 1970s, the best, lowest cost producers of petroleum were mostly outside the United States. Whether they were in the Middle East or somewhere else, they were mostly outside the United States. And we wanted and needed cheap oil to run the American economy. And as the price of oil went up, it actually interfered with the economic growth of the U.S. economy and created inflation. But we still decided to create a national national petroleum strategic reserve because we felt that our foreign policy was being held hostage to the producers of oil. And that was not a long-term acceptable thing to do. And we needed to insulate ourselves from the, you know, political manipulation of the price of oil. I think in this case, we need to do the same thing. And we can't have 
drug manufacturing, mask manufacturing, consumer electronic manufacturing completely held hostage to the political interests of the Communist Party of China. Yeah, and and I think one of the biggest miscalculations, strategic miscalculations, was the decoupling of our economic foreign policy from our national security objectives. For a long time, they kind of went hand in hand. We had obviously the Marshall Plan, which was an economic package to Europe, which uh, was delivered to fulfill strategic objectives, strategic political objectives. So for a long time, there was a symbiotic relationship between our economic foreign policy with our national security priorities. And after the Cold War, there's been a little bit of a decoupling of those two things, partly because there was this philosophy that it didn't matter because if you give a country Starbucks and McDonald's, they're eventually going to become free and their people will want freedom and the desire will come from the ground up and therefore we don't need to prioritize it. And and that decoupling, I think, has really uh, come back to haunt us quite a bit. And so I think today there's increasingly the acknowledgement that pure and perfect Ricardian models of competition uh, were always based on the assumption that you would have an equilibrium. And when you would have uh, surpluses or um, deficits, eventually you have macroeconomic adjustments, what the International Monetary Fund calls automatic stabilizers that return the trading relationship to an equilibrium. We haven't had that because our companies are competing against state-backed companies it's not uh, an environment of pure and perfect competition. It's asymmetric competition. And I think it makes a lot of sense for us to think about having free trade with free people and recalibrating our trading relationships with uh, oppressive authoritarian countries that don't do business uh, in ways that other countries do. And I will just point out one fact, which is that there's only one country in the G20 that has a civil military fusion doctrine that melts together its private sector and its public sector. And that country is China. There is no other country that's like it. It is a sui generis risk and country. And I think for us to ignore that, uh, I think would be a huge mistake. And it, uh, it is perfectly appropriate for us to acknowledge it and deal with it accordingly. Because some people have made the case that we should have a country neutral approach and I think that is artificially blinding us to the basic reality that China is sui generis, I think would land us in the wrong place. Let's talk about TikTok, the, uh, we, we, you know, the, sort of the regulations, sort of the, the sale, what, what that means, second or third order effects, uh, you know, what, what we can expect. I mean, what it more, you know, means more broadly for the future of sort of, you know, how tech pl- platforms, open platforms and sort of geopolitics uh, intersect. Sure. I mean, where should we start? I mean, I think it's really right now as we're recording this, it's not clear how this is going to play out. I think there's a lot of you know moving pieces at the moment, and um, no one's written really an authoritative description of a potential transaction. Um, so I think it depends, at least in my mind, how these details are finally decided, whether it's good or bad. I think it's clearly been good for the Trump administration to put pressure on China to focus on the threat posed by TikTok, both from a national security standpoint and from an economic standpoint. I think they're both relevant. 
Uh, I think people who are critical of Trump's focus on the issue have have really been not paying attention. This is something that was initiated over a year ago. The CFIS agencies were unanimous, intelligence agencies were unanimous in concluding that TikTok is a security threat to the United States. This is not a, you know, political move by Trump. This is this is a very serious problem. Now, how to solve it, you can debate the wisdom of how Trump has been trying to address it and his interactions with various players in the ecosystem. Perfectly valid potential critiques there, although we'll see where it lands. Um, I think before giving a grade to the Trump administration, you have to see what the net result is. But the grade of paying attention and not being naive, I'd give him an A. We'll see whether he gets an F or C or a B or an A minus when it's ultimately resolved. But this is a very serious problem. WeChat, similarly, I think a lot of people were not paying attention to the threat posed by WeChat, and I'm very glad that the administration is. Uh, you know, I think it's very controversial because you know there's a lot of users of both these products, and any time the government is interfering with the usage of popular products, there's going to be some short-term pushback. But it's a little bit like the economic trade-off we were discussing before. There are benefits of using these products to American consumers. However, in the long term, we may be much more in jeopardy if we don't take action sooner rather than later. Um, India obviously started, you know, a very uh, blanket ban realistically on Chinese apps in the Indian market. And as Jacob has pointed out, the sky didn't fall. Yep. Uh, lots of people would have said, oh my God, you know, the country can never do that. A democracy can never do that. Democracy should never do that. India recognizes the military threat posed by the Chinese government and is unwilling to allow its citizens to be blackmailed and threatened and manipulated by China. And I'm glad that they set that precedent. And the United States is absolutely just as at risk, maybe not directly militarily, but certainly our allies in Taiwan, the free people in Hong Kong are absolutely exposed and potentially longer term people in Japan, Korea, Australia are are in jeopardy as well. Just want to second um, all the things that that Keith said, and uh, I think I completely agree that the steps that the Indian government took do set a good precedent and and do make a lot of sense because there are some serious uh, because of China's doctrine of civil military fusion, there are some serious issues with allowing a company that's collecting. Uh, GPS data, clipboard data, and as you know, your, a lot of your listeners know, clipboard data means that uh, that includes everything that you're copying and pasting on your phone and off the app. Which, for a lot of people, that includes emails and passwords to a lot of accounts. It's a lot of sensitive data that has nothing to do with dancing videos, and a lot that data being susceptible to falling into the hands of the Chinese Communist Party is incredibly problematic. And we kind of got a glimpse of that with uh, the issues that swirled up a few months ago with Zoom, where people were getting mysteriously blocked uh, for discussing uh, sensitive issues like Tiananmen Square or uh, Chinese citizens logging on to Zoom to observe a Sunday worship, getting arrested after observing a Sunday worship. There are some real-world consequences to allowing a foreign power, a foreign autocratic major power to have access to data uh, to 50 million American devices. And, and I think the question, there has been so much noise and confusion about the issue on TikTok. I would break up the issue in 
three short ways, which is, does the president have the authority to take the action that, that he's taken? And I think overwhelmingly, the answer is indisputably yes. There is legislation in place that was duly passed by Congress that provides the president, no matter who's president, not just this president, any future president, the authority to take these types of actions. There is the question of process, which is, has the administration followed the right process to implement the action taken? I think that is probably the biggest point of debate uh, that is being disputed uh, in terms of a legal debate. Did was TikTok given sufficient due process? Uh, was it you know given sufficient consideration? And then there is a the question of is the outcome the right outcome? Uh, some people have said that oh well. It's not the right outcome because in the real world, when a government asks information, asks a tech company information about its users, in the real world, it's more of a two-way negotiation than a handover. In, and I can say, having worked at a tech company, that that is completely true for almost every country. It is absolutely not the case when it comes to China. In China, it's not a two-way negotiation. It is a request, and companies are 100% expected to comply with that request. The last time that uh, companies tried to push back on the Chinese government, uh, the Chinese government pushed American companies out of China, including Facebook and Google and Twitter and Netflix and all the companies that we know that aren't every, almost every American content platform. The argument that it's a two-way negotiation, I think, really doesn't hold water in the context of China. And the basic idea that the U.S. should have a country-neutral approach, I think, ignores the basic reality that uh, China is a unique threat. And, and as President Obama once eloquently said, it's really important. It's important for the United States to face the world as it is, not as we wish it were. And I don't think, unfortunately artificially blinding us, uh, blinding ourselves to the reality, to the uniqueness of, of, China, of the threats China poses, a lot is going to leave America more secure in the long run. Do, do you think that criticism or that sort of line, you know, uh, face the world as it is, not as it, as it wish we were, it, it can be cr- cr- used against the United States in terms of their policies in the Middle East over the past couple of decades, you know, us trying to sort of impose democracy on, on places that per- perhaps weren't ready for it? Or do you think that's, you know, incorrect or too simplistic of a, of a critique? I, I, Nobody. So I'm happy you bring up this point because all of your listeners hear that democracy has never been about perfection and it has never been about never making mistakes. There have always been excesses and missteps in raucous democratic systems. Uh, what makes our system different than China, because some people have said, oh, the U.S. taking action on TikTok is basically amounts to the U.S. replicating China. What makes us different than China is not that we have no rules and they have rules. What makes us different is that our rules are democratic, that we can sit here today and agree on some things and disagree on others and speak our minds freely. When excesses occur, like the ones you know that you Uh, alluded to in the Middle East, we have a free press that will scrutinize those excesses. We have a uh, an environment where Edward Snowden, who broke our laws, can publish a book and have that book circulated. You can take a decision to court. TikTok is trying to take the Trump administration's decision to court because we have an independent judiciary. That is what a system of checks and balances looks like. 
look like. And, uh, and in, you know, I would simply ask, let's look at what happened in Hong Kong. Where is, you know, we have Black Li- the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S. Where is the Rigor's Life Matter movement in China? Where are, where is, where are the checks and balances in China? That's, and I think at the end of the day, democracy is not perfect, but if you're going to pick a system, let's look at the full picture and let's ask ourselves, if you believe in your own right to speak your mind and to have disagreements with people, then I think you are tacitly supporting the American democratic system. Well put. L- let's segue into, in, into the election. Uh, we're sitting here, it's you know, 45 days or just a bit over a month uh, until the election, which, oh my God, it's going to be insane. Let, let's talk about sort of the state of play. And now, Keith, I'm curious to get your assessment on where, where are things, you know, RGB, uh, you know, passed away tragically a, a few days ago. That shakes up the playing field. If, if you put on your sort of objective, you know, neutral, just, uh, you know, uh, analysis, uh, analyst hat, what's happening right now? And what do either parties, you know, need to do in order to, uh, in order to win if you were, you know, strategizing for, for either of them? Yeah, well, I think right now the race is still too volatile and unpredictable. I don't, th- I don't believe that the linear extrapolation from the polls is a wise thing to do. Um, although traditionally and certainly historically, that would have been mostly accurate. Races don't shift that much at this this late stage usually, especially with two well-known candidates, and they both have you know, name IDs that are off the charts. The issues, though, that I worry about, the volatility is obviously 2020, if anything, has taught us that you should expect the unexpected <laughs> um, and, you know, in all dimensions of our life. Like black swan seems like a common, you know, refrain these days. Uh, but I think there's a couple areas where easily you could see the race shake up. I mean, the dynamics of the Supreme Court replacement you know, is one variable and that's still going to play out over the next week or two. And we'll see how that shape shapes races. Second, um, I think the health of both candidates, both being very old, 74 and 78, basically the same age as my parents, they're all subject to, you know, either small or serious um, health issues in the last 42 days. And that could, you know, introduce a lot of variability in the race. There's a presidential debate coming in about seven or eight days. Typically, people tune in for the first debate in that, you know, it's a pretty high profile event that could shake up the dynamics of the race, let alone unexpected developments on the healthcare side, you know, whether COVID becomes more acute in the United States again due to the fall and flu season and the various, you know, components that people were talking about on the fear side, or whether we have progress on instant tests, rapidly available saliva-based tests that can, you know, allow businesses to be open more frequently and more easily, or we have progress on a therapeutic or our vaccine. All of those things will play into the dynamics going into the election. Economic data, there's going to be one more jobs report that's going to come out before the election, which almost surely will be very positive for the administration. Just looking around even San Francisco, which is the most locked out city in the United States, people are hiring here again for the first time, you know, since March. Um, You know, our my addiction at Barry's boot camp is opening tomorrow morning for the first time. Amazing. And that, but that's a sign of, you know, where the economy is going. And so I think if the jobs data is great going into the last month election, there's a little bit of a propellant there behind, you know, a reelection campaign. So I think it's still yet very challenging to predict where this nets out and it'd be kind of a fool's errand. Um, net net, you know, you look at the pollsters, the pollsters would basically say plus or minus it's 75% Biden, 25% Trump in terms of a distribution curve. You look at the betting markets, they're more like 48% 
Trump, 52% Biden. If you asked me to make a call right now, I'd be probably somewhere between roughly 40% Trump and maybe 60% of Biden election. But I, 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 I don't want to put out my forecast quite yet. I mean, you know, in 2016, I correctly, I think I'm the only person on all of Twitter that predicted the electoral college popular vote split. And, you know, on July 4th of 2016, I pick, I called Trump's election percentage at 46. Point zero percent. He actually got forty six point one percent. So I missed by you know ten basis points um, five months before the election. But right now, I feel very unconfident trying to project where this election's going. Uh, I want to get to tech markets, but before I just want to close, put a pin in in China. You know, I, I've been reading a little bit of Peter Zehan, and it seems that his sort of prediction for for China over the next decade is basically what he predicts is the U.S. will continue to retreat. Um, from sort of its economic global entanglements because they seem to make less and less sense for, for the U.S. and will focus much, much more inwardly. But China is totally reliant on those uh, those economic uh, entanglements. I think it gets, I don't know if it gets 25% of their oil or 75% of their oil from the Persian Gulf. And without the U.S. sort of protecting the seas, it, it's just going to be sort of chaos there. And so basically, he predicts that China's uh, economy will implode in any number of ways. And, and maybe it will mimic, you know, we were talking about Russia earlier, the, the sort of that, that Cold War in terms of one side will just implode. If you would predict, you know, over the next decade, like, how do you, how do you think that relationship will evolve? Or, or, or what do you think? Uh, do you think it's that dire? Or what, what do you think happens there? It's a fat, I mean, it's a fascinating theory. Um, I do believe, though, if that were to happen, it put incredible stress on the powers that be in China. So one of the reasons why the Communist Party has stayed in power is over the last 40 years, to their credit, they have improved materially the welfare of the individual citizens in China. So there's 1.2 billion people, and they've taken the role and responsibility of increasing the sort of lifestyle and availability, you know, of access to food and shelter very seriously. And they've been able to grow the economy so that they can propel, um, you know, improvements to standard of living basically uh, for all 1.2 billion people. It's been incredibly impressive, but it's basically a top-down political protection uh, theory as well. The lesson the Chinese elite learned from Tiananmen Square was if we feed our people better, we're just going to be less threatened by, you know, demands for democracy. And so if the economy is under more stress, I think then all hell may break loose domestically and you'll see more threats to the powers that be, whether they're protests like you saw in Tiananmen Square, whether you see their true revolutionaries emerging through the system, a little bit like the Mikhail Gorbachev's, you know, in the Soviet experience. But there's going to be significant stress. And when there's significant stress, sometimes that leads to more hostility externally. Um, so that could be more confrontation with the U.S., not less. It may yield a better like long-term outcome to have significant internal stress, but the byproduct of that may be short-term very scary for Americans. It is, it, it is not uncommon for autocratic regimes to turn to foreign adventures when the going gets rough at home. I mean, we've seen that in Russia, for example, where the economy in Russia, the domestic economy in Russia is incredibly stressed, as Keith said. Um, uh, Vladimir Putin has uh, turned outward to on foreign adventures in Crimea and, um, you know, in the late 2000s in in Georgia, uh, to try to tell its people that, look, you may not have jobs and you may not have a great economy and life expectancy may be receding, but 
we're restoring national glory because we're re-annexing, we're re-Sovietizing parts of the old Soviet empire. So one could easily conceive China following a similar playbook because its uh, history suggests that there's something about human nature uh, for, for leaders to cling to these types of behavior patterns. And there's already the foundations in place. I mean, China obviously uh, just did this with Hong Kong, where it basically completely rebuked core assumptions of the one country, two systems policy, which was predicated on a peaceful resolution. And But it could do the same in, in Taiwan. It just builds the largest fleet in the world. So one would ask, and it is building up, it's carrying out a weapons buildup right across uh, the strait uh, um, of the South China Sea. So one would ask, why are they doing a, we- a weapons buildup right across the strait from Taiwan? And why would they need 350 ships? Uh, if, it's, if they felt that the U.S. was running sea lanes appropriately, Uh, And if they didn't have the intention to change the way that sea lanes are run, why do they need 350 ships? So I think the writings on the wall, the direction of travel is very concerning. And uh, I think now uh, the U.S. has a window of opportunity to talk that is... Uh, the hourglass is running and th- that window of opportunity is limited, but uh, we still have the opportunity to carry out very r- substantive talks with Japan, Australia, South Korea, and India about ways of preventing things from spiraling out of control with Taiwan and with other countries in that region. Some people compare sort of what, what's happened recently with some of the, like the civil, civil unrest with sort of the, the late 60s. You know, with RBG passing, they're, they're potentially, if, if a judge isn't passed, you know, the worst case scenario, there's a 4 4 split. Like, are, are I, you know, the politics is, you know, as heated as ever. Are either of you worried about sort of like an, a breakdown internally? Or do you say, no, we've been here b- before, we've been through way worse before, even in the past century, and, you know, w- we'll be fine no matter what happens? Well, I think we don't have the experience since actually the mid 1800s of um, a very convoluted election result. Um, we had a little bit of a 2000, but by, by historical standards, that was quite calm. But if you look back through American history, and actually it's one of the things I, I intend to do is reread the American history from, you know, sort of like the late 1790s into the late 1800s, there were some very complicated elections. There was elections that were resolved by the House of Representatives. There's you know, lots of interesting turmoil. Um, so I think there is some precedent for this. Obviously, without the visibility of social media, just regular media covering it, and that might, you know, amplify various things and change the dynamics. But it's not as if the American experience has never confronted this before. That said, um, we don't have the normal outlet for a democracy for problems like this is usually um, a negotiated sort of compromise. So we've seen this in Israel. Israel's had roughly a divided country um, politically uh, for the last three years. Um, they've had to run like three or four elections because they couldn't get a result. They couldn't get a majority, you know, majority in the parliament. And eventually what happened was after three basically pseudo ties, the two main candidates for prime minister negotiated a settlement, which is I'll stay, that Netanyahu is I'll stay in office for two more years. I'm getting kind of old. I'm like 68 and eventually I'm going to retire. And you can just take over the prime ministership after those two years and then everybody, you know, will accept this compromise. 
we don't have a mechanism for like Trump staying in office for two more years and then Biden taking over or Kamala Harris taking over in two more years. So there's no way to reach a, a settlement that's like negotiated, um, unlike in a parliamentary system where you typically have like these blocks and factions that can reach a settlement where, you know, if you appoint this person, min, uh, prime minister, then this person will become treasury secretary or something like that. So I do worry that our system is designed to create a winner, a winner-take-all sort of system, and that therefore, when there's not a clear result, the normal stress-relieving mechanisms that democracies have had for hundreds of years don't really exist in our experience. And so that could be a real problem, and maybe eventually we'll have to develop some you know, compromise hybrid solutions, but our constitution doesn't really contemplate that. And uh, and I, I also share those concerns. I think I'm a big believer in the resilience of American democracy, but I do I am pretty concerned about whether perceived or real the legitimacy of the election. Well, my my concern is like not broad like that. I do think though there's going to be this weird perverse dynamic where let's say if the election were held tomorrow, and just so eliminating the variability, I think Trump would win on election day the majority of votes. And because Democrats are just more likely to vote by mail, vote remotely, absentee ballot, et cetera. And because we don't have the systems in place to count absentee ballots and direct and votes by mail instantly and quickly, you're going to see a, a spread between what looks to be the election held on November 3rd or 4th, whatever it is, and the results that come in later. And that's an unhealthy dynamic. And that may switch at some point in the future when a different candidate wins on election day and a different candidate, you know, has more mail-in ballots. But I think that amplifies the problem substantially because most American experiences, you know, you, you'd watch, most of us grew up when you'd watch like the nightly news and ABC news, you know, would call the election or this state for Georgia for the Republican or this state for the Democrat. And then eventually you get to a projection and that'd be the person who's the president of the United States on election night. It's kind of a ritual almost like, an event. And I think as we shift into a delayed election, that is going to cause both sides to have serious, you know, concerns about the true result. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't, if it wasn't so dramatic about the propensity to vote in person versus mail, I don't think the problem would be as severe, but all the evidence I see today is Republicans are going to do very well on election day. And Biden is certainly going to do well by people who, with people who voted in advance. Whew, we're in for a wild, uh, wild ride. With, uh, with, with, with 10 minutes remaining, I want to get to, uh, to, 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 th- to three topics uh, on the tech side. The sort of COVID you know, venture thesis in terms of wh- where you're excited uh, you know, right now and going forward um, over the next you know, 12 to 18 months, where you're looking for. Uh, any requests for startups. That's one. Two, uh, sort of public uh, market, you know, whether this fact phenomenon is here to stay, obviously, you know, Open Doors is, is going through it. Um, and three, uh, just, you know, long, short, sort of, uh, you know, remote work. And then, you know, is there really an exodus uh, outside of Silicon Valley uh, ha- happening? Um, so first, I'll start with the obvious question. Keith, of course, Open Doors is going through, uh, through, through a SPAC, but, but where's your SPAC? Where's your independent SPAC? Well, I don't want to run a SPAC. I, you know, already am busy enough for the venture fund. Um, you know, we have a $1.4 billion venture fund and $1.5 billion growth fund. 
We're very, very busy. Um, you know, I've been deluged with investments over the summer. Um, I'm serving on something like 16 boards. I don't have time for new stuff. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, I'll leave the SPAC creation, the SPAC management, the SPAC sales process to others. It seems like it's a very attractive thing for lots of people. There's lots of people we know in common that are running SPACs these days and probably more that are jumping in the market. But uh, I'll be happy to send my best companies to the SPAC sponsors that are good. Hopefully, there's some matchmaking function I can perform, but I have no desire to create or run a SPAC. Totally. Is this a, is this a temporary phenomenon, or what, where, where are we sort of at with, with, with going public, and, and what can we expect going forward? Oh, I think a lot of companies want to go public as fast as possible. I think they detect you know, both uh, electoral volatility coming uh, along the lines we discussed, and you know, stability is usually rule of law and stability are usually friends of business and volatility and unpredictability are usually not. So I think there's one issue there, which is everybody's rushing to go public before the election. Number two, I think if Biden were to win, because he's already announced that he's going to raise the capital gains tax rate, there's going to be a sell-off in the public markets because people are going to want to lock in the gains this year in calendar year 2020 and not pay double the capital gains tax rate that he's already announced he wants to impose. So if you have a massive sell-off, that may trigger a catastrophic and somewhat permanent decay in the market. So I think that's concerning, but not necessarily inevitable. Um, So I think all these things are in. And third is the valuations are actually quite attractive right now, right? The public market comparables to all the private companies are quite strong. So a lot of private companies are looking at the comparables and saying, why wouldn't I be public? It seems like public market investors are going to appreciate my business, maybe even more so than private investors would. Why not? Um, So I think that equation has led to a lot of urgency, sense of urgency in going public. The SPAC phenomenon is maybe even a, a, a solution to that, a temporary solution, which is there's a perception that a SPAC process is faster than a traditional IPO process. That is mostly true, although I do think that's a temporary blip. I think there's some reasons to believe that they should harmonize to be about the same amount of time with the right leadership, holding constant the same company, same leadership. Uh, but in there's an attraction to SPACs because on average, people have been able to be a public entity through a SPAC process in, let's say, two to three months. And traditionally, the IPO process is more like four to six. And given that there's a D-date of the election that everybody's worried about, or certainly end of the year, uh, that has led to a lot of appeal of a SPAC. But there's a lot of things that are wrong with the traditional IPO process. Bill Gurley, you know, tweets and writes about this a lot. That has also led to you know, innovation around direct listings, not just SPACs. So I think the entire process of going public may be revisited over the next you know, 6 to 24 months. Um, and SPACs, direct listings, and IPO uh, liberalization and rule changes will all be you know, components of a new solution. Yeah. Let's quickly touch on any sort of requests for startups in COVID or markets you're particularly excited about or, you know, a, a, a hot take on, on valuations or how you sort of expect, you know, the, the you know, uh, private markets and public markets to sort of, you know, intersect. Well, the private, the public market valuations are, you know, in some ways very refreshing. They're basically, it's perfect proof of what I've always believed that the public markets are actually great long-term investors. This idea that public market investors are short-term thinkers is just false. All of these companies are being valued on their long-term potential. And if anything, COVID is basically 
validated that because everybody's just like ignoring the distortions and the volatility associated with COVID over the last one or two quarters and saying like, look, we still believe in you over the next 20 years. Why would our valuation change? And fundamentally, their valuations are going up partially because interest rates are down. So to some extent, when you discount 20 years, you discount by a perceived interest rate, a projected interest rate. And if if the interest rates go down and you don't change your perceived uh, cash flow, then by definition, the valuation should be going up, which is partially what you've seen. I do think there's a risk premium that maybe should be priced into some of this stuff um, that isn't, but the interest rate discounted value of cash is real. There's some companies that have been propelled by COVID, but I think that's a minority. Like There's obviously the Zooms and the Pelotons and the DoorDashes, but those are extreme examples. That is not mainstream everyday transactional stuff um and those come the mainstream stuff like tesla tesla is not propelled by covid but it's certainly being valued as well as ever the real estate companies whether they're zillow redfin or open door there is some desire to move that you can see in the markets and maybe that's helping uh some of the real estate companies but not not at a fundamental level like in the peloton sense so i I think these are mostly neutral valuations that are covid in like insensitive and not a reaction to covid as much as reaction to the interest rate environment and the long-term willingness of people to invest in companies that have long-term potential. COVID did shift some inertia. So it's easier to rearrange human affairs uh, when people have to, out of desperation, change their behavior. I mean, one of the hardest parts about launching a consumer-oriented company is people have uh, historical ways of interacting with each other. There's like the classic eight things people do on a date. You know, they go to a concert, they go to a movie, they go out to dinner, blah, blah, blah. In during COVID world, you had to rethink what you would do on a date because you couldn't do any of those things. So the ability to create a new product or service that would be like appealing during a date was possible where it'd be like almost like a fool's errand to try to reinvent that in a normal environment. So I think it's unlocks and unleashed some consumer, you know, new behaviors as people are desperate for new things. But whether they are permanent or temporary is a bigger and open question. Do, do we have a couple minutes on on whether remote is is here to stay as much as people think it is. I'll I'll give you the key view of this is I don't believe in remote, generally speaking, um, as a good strategy. The biggest reason is, and I'll use a sports metaphor here, is some people do like gymnastics. Some people do play tennis. Some people play golf. Uh, but a lot of people choose to play basketball, baseball, football, uh, soccer, because they're team sports. And when you're working remotely, you don't, you may get the productivity gains of working remotely, or you may not sacrifice the productivity, but you don't get the joy and benefits of having teammates. So part of the reason why you like having teammates is you gossip with them, you joke with them, you make fun with them, you bond with them, they become your best friends. And that's very difficult to generate in a remote world. And so I think we're seeing some signs of disconnect in, uh, and dis- dysfunction, truthfully, in some of the companies I'm involved in. The companies are technically more productive or certainly not degrading in productivity during COVID, but that satisfaction per employee is down pretty dramatically. And I think that's because people look at a job as a bundle for many people. It's a job. Some people, it's just purely a professional activity. I just want to go from point A to point B as fast as possible. A lot of people look at a job as a combination of a social enterprise and a productivity, you know, work product craft and a compensation bundle. And we really deprive people of that. So where I think where it lands is people will be 
back in their office and it'll be a comparative advantage to be back in the office sooner rather than later, but there'll be more flexibility. It may be three days a week in the office where everybody's there at the same time and two days you can work from where you want, but there's going to be uh, contemporaneous time requirements that allow for spontaneous generation of new ideas, as well as the bonding with teammates and the social joy parts of the job that especially younger employees want. I think as you have a family and as you have other commitments in life, you may focus more on different parts of the bundle. And that may be the productivity and efficiency part. But for a lot of people as they're entering the workforce, connecting with other people is a critical part of the environment that they crave. The last question we'll get you and then we'll get you out of here. So does that mean that you are long San Francisco, but in a resigned sense, people will have to be here, but they'll be frustrated about it? I don't know if they'll be San Francisco. I think they will be jointly located and they may also do um there's an interesting strategy that square cash app has used where they are not remote but they are decentralized all the designers have to be in new york all the engineers have to be in australia i believe all of you know the business people are i think here but so there's like a center for a domain for expertise you get the benefits of your craft and you have your colleagues all in one office but the different groups, different functional expertises can be based in other places. So you can like tap into like, there's a great pool of designers in New York city. There's a great pool of engineers apparently in Australia and you can like take advantage of local talent pools that way, but you get the density, you get the spontaneous interaction and creativity and you get the joy of working with people. So I think that's an interesting model for other people to pursue at fair. We've had this for a while where the business marketing support functions are in San Francisco. The engineering team has always been in Toronto from the time we started the company until today. And data science has been a hybrid. So I think you may see more solutions like that. So I'm not necessarily convinced that San Francisco is the end all be all, but I think real world presence is pretty indispensable in a kind of Darwinian sapiens historical suite perspective. My my guests today have been uh, Keith Raboy and Jacob Helberg. Uh, if, if you enjoyed what you what you listened to, uh, check out Jacob's other podcasts uh, on China and his pieces in foreign policy. They're absolutely fantastic. Uh, Jacob and Keith, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.